Welcome to the Dental Business Podcast with your host and owner of multiple businesses, a mentor, investor, and dental surgeon, Brad Thornton. Hi guys, welcome back to the next episode of the Dental Business Podcast. One thing that keeps cropping up when I'm, I'm sort of asking people the, the topics that they'd like to hear about, one thing that crops up is actually practice purchasing and buying a dental practice. It seems to be something which, you know, quite a lot of the dental population are going to start to move towards at some point in their career. It's the right thing for a lot of people. It's the wrong thing for others. Some people aren't interested, but a lot of people are. And, you know, you need to educate yourself as much as you can in the run up to buying a dental practice. So I thought I'd do a, an episode where I interviewed somebody who I deem to be a, a real expert in the field. Like I've said before, you know, I have no affiliations. I've got no interest in any of these companies. These are people who I genuinely trust and genuinely respect for on a professional level. And, and Martin's a guy who is obvious from this interview is, is really is an expert. He's a practice sales director for PFM Dental, a company that I've had dealings with in the past. And I, I, um, I, I respect as well. And they are a good company to deal with. And um, I'm hoping you get a lot of value from this interview. We touch on literally everything that is involved in buying a dental practice. And one of the takeaway messages that I've got is that, you know, and something that if people are chatting to me about is really there's, there's not really much holding people back from, from buying, buying a dental practice. I've always said that waiting for the right moment or waiting for everything to be perfect is the main reason why people don't progress and grow because there never is the right moment. Sometimes you've just got to get the ball rolling and figure it out as we go along. But thankfully, there are professionals that are helping us figure things out sooner. And so really the thing is start these conversations early, reach out to people like Martin, start talking to them about the plans that you've got and the, and the things that you're thinking about and they can help structure things based on their experiences and the knowledge that they've got. So I hope you enjoy the episode. As I said, it's Martin Bradshaw, PFM Dental, talking all about practice ownership and buying a dental practice. Here we go. Thank you for doing the podcast. <laughs> no worries, Brad. Good to see um, you. It's interesting, actually, because I've spoken to quite a few dentists before this, telling them that I'm going to be speaking to you about practice ownership and practice purchasing and yeah. process and stuff. And I wanted to know what kind of things people wanted to know about. Yeah. And loads of people, apart from the odd few, were all asking about things that happen after you've actually bought it. That's so interesting. It's to do with um, your previous principles, to do with contractual things, retainers. Um, so my first sort of thought I thought I'd chat about is when people come to you, do you find that a lot of them are obviously looking, all right, well, I want to buy this practice. This is my end goal. Hmm. Do they not really pay much attention to the process of buying it? Do, do yeah, people not see that? I think in reality, people are, are very naive when, when they look to purchase a, a practice. Um, so, I mean, obviously, um, PFM, uh, a, a big dental agency um, dealing with dental practice sales. So, um, when, when we're approached by potential buyers, uh, I mean, we're approached by buyers for both practices that we own, uh, sorry, we're selling, um, and, and obviously practices where they maybe have seen with another agent or, or it might be the, the, an associate of a principal who's looking to sell. Um, 
I think in reality, everybody generally, unless they've bought a previous practice, are very naive in in, in the whole process. Um, not just what will happen after, but actually, how will I get from A to B? How will I get from I've seen this practice to actually I'm going to actually own it? Um, and 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 not appreciating probably who needs to be involved, the the time scales and and, and the whole process. Yeah. So. Um, and do you think that, because I know you do your, um, I feel like what they call like lectures, talks and things where you actually go through these processes? Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, we, we, we do seminars throughout the UK, um, both for purchasers and, and, and sellers, um, independently of each other, obviously. Um, and, and we do go through the process. I mean, just to sort of give a, a brief background to, to PFM, um, Obviously, you you know us from from purchasing your practice, but back in 1990, we set up sales and valuations and and financial services. So we are a purely dental firm. Um, But more recently, in 2010, um, because of um, issues that I was finding and my financial advisor clients were finding with, um, with clients' experience of accountants, um, we set up PFM Accountancy, um, which has been a huge success. And then, and then only recently, four or five years ago, we um, we asked a, a guy called Stephen Knowles, who was a dental solicitor. I'm not sure. I recognise yeah, um, yeah. if you use him. Um, so he he was a dental solicitor back since when I was um, joined PFM back in 2004. He was a dental solicitor for another firm. We. Again, we were becoming frustrated with the timescales of sales and 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 the um, the the lack of what appeared to be sort of care to the client. Um, and so we asked Stephen to come over to us four or five years ago to set up PFM Legal. Um, so it's interesting because now our seminars are very much run on our um, me going in to discuss valuations and and financial profiling on a practice. Um, then we've got the accountants discussing the accountancy process, how to buy a practice, whether it be through a limited company, whether it to be a, a, a sole trader, um, the, the, the tax that they will need to be looking at, and, and actually the accountancy going forward from, from completion. Um, we've then got the lawyers going through the, the legal process of the, the, the due diligence, the CQC, the NHS contract transfers, and um, and, and any any issues that, that people might have, such as the principal contract uh, contractual arrangements, and then we've got the financial advisors going. Okay, and part of the bank loans will be you need certain insurances in place, and, and we can put those in place as well. So we try to cover what we can on a probably a two hour, three hour slot of of actually a nine month process. Um, yeah. But I think what we try to do is. Is throw so much information um, to to sort of give you a rough idea as to to what's going to happen, but probably makes you realise actually I know less than probably when I came in, yeah. um, because I thought I sort of knew what was going on. Now I know there's so much, um, but I don't know it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's useful. Uh, yeah, I think. Um You've literally gone through all my points. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing process. Um, and I mean, each, each 
needs more time devoting to it. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. Um, and they, uh, what I think, we're, I mean, say what we were talking about before um, on the buyers need to understand what they want to buy. Yeah. And that that's the biggest thing for me. And I think it's something that I always did from 2004. Um, I, when I joined, I was very much focused on on, on talking to buyers and, and actually trying to understand them. And, and I think it's, it's always stood us in good stead that um, if you understand a buyer, you understand what they're wanting, you can actually say, do you know what? We've got this practice, but actually I don't think it's right for you. Because to be fair, if I was to say that, um, and you ignored me and two months down the line you, you were halfway through legal work and thought do you know what? it isn't right for me yeah. the, it, we've wasted the vendor's time and, and, and your time and, and it, so it's, it's trying to get an appreciation of what a buyer wants um, regardless of whether we're selling or, or not and, and trying to determine if that practice is suitable for them Yeah, um, a couple of things actually from what you just said it's interesting when when you have these seminars, who are the people that come usually? Have, have you got these these young sort of aspirational dentists, or is it the disillusioned associate? Yeah, is it a bit of everything? I, I think. I, I mean, to be fair, I, I probably don't ask, um, but I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I, I think the majority of people have been looking for a while. Um, in, in my experience, they're, they're not the people that have just decided, I think next year I'm going to buy a practice and, and suddenly they think that it's going to be purchased. They're, they've generally been around for a couple of years thinking about it, potentially looking at, at practices, whether they've viewed them or not, not sure, um, because some will, will slowly go into it, similar to, I guess, buying a house. You, you, you start looking at the market to see what's out there. Um, but we have associates who potentially looking to buy the principles. We have guys that are just frustrated that they've viewed 10 practices, may, may be offered on five and, and haven't, haven't managed to succeed. Um, so are probably just looking at maybe is, is there any tips in which, um, which I'm falling down on? Yeah. Um, and it, it's, I think it's really an interesting market because I, I came in um, prior to new NHS contracts in 2006. And I always hate to use the word new, now they're 14 yeah. years old. Um, but the demand levels from 2006 absolutely soared um, to, to such extent where we were having 20, 30 buyers for each NHS practice, um, which uh, is unbelievable levels. Yeah, that is, that is crazy, isn't it? And just out of interest as well, because is, is this true? So... When you look online and you look at, because um, I know your, like your website and all the various different sort of, I call them brokers, I don't know yeah. what you, yeah, it's um, yeah. what you sort of see at the stage where it's online or um, is that, has that been filtered through kind of corporates and the big guys? And no, people that- um, I mean, I, I suppose I can only, I can only answer for, for ourselves. Um Yes and no. Um, okay, so scenario being that we may have a client who has, uh, to give you an example, we had a client um, over in 
uh, northwestish area, um, practice worth over four million pound. Um, we knew that there's no point going to open market. Um, you're not going to contact the individual associates who, who are looking for the first practice and, and going to, to be able to fund it. So what do we do there? Um, well, I have a conversation with the client and say, in reality, I think you're best off going to a select few people. Um, and to be fair, those will never go into open market. So if you're looking on our website, for example, you're probably seeing 50% of what we deal with. Yeah. Um, the other 50% just will never go on because we've either they will primarily be more corporate driven um, and uh, which I, I think is a discussion point in itself, but or they, they, they will be maybe a principal selling to an associate. Um, so again, we, we deal with a lot of uh, principals who, who come in and say, I want to sell to my associate. Um, so we will do a valuation for them. Uh, we will provide them with the, the same process as we would if we were selling. Um, but then we will actually handle that sale um, for the vendor and, and also deal with the, the, the buyer as well to, to ensure that they've got everything in place. Because again, they're, they're, they're very generally very naive in, in the process. Um, so as much help as we can give the purchaser helps the sale as well. Yeah. Um, with regards to that, if um, if you've got a dentist who's wanting or they're thinking about buying, what what kind of is there a run up to it? Um, is there a, things that they can do from a personal financial point of view from from certain things yeah. to make them look like a better? I, th- I, th- I think some parts, yes, and 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 most most things. I, I think if somebody wants sees a practice, they, they should just go for it. Yeah. Um, I, I think. Fundamentally, when we're looking at any purchaser, that the, what we're really looking at for them um, is the the finance side of it. Um, if we're looking at their personal financial position and they've got huge credit card debts, huge loan loans, um, no mortgage, um, it, it's sort of demonstrating to the bank that actually this person likes to spend money. Um, they're probably spending more than they're earning, which is never really a, a good thing for a bank to think. If that per, if that purchaser's maybe got a residential mortgage, um, no loans, no credit cards, but no no money, it, that doesn't matter so much because what what they're seeing is that they're using the money and then putting it into something good, um, yeah. and and they will use that because the the philosophy being that going forward. They will be looking after the practice. They will be trying to drip out, extract everything that they can. That they're actually looking after their, their yeah. money, the finances, the kind of asset focused rather than liability focused. Yeah, yeah. And, and not just frivolously spending the money. Um, and and that that's a, that's a, a an interesting thing for the banks because I, I've had clients where we've maybe had. Um, a reasonable deposit and, and on, on the grand scheme of it, it looks absolutely fine, but they've got either huge debt or, or they've got high levels of earnings. But they're actually, other than a, a, a reasonable deposit, they actually haven't demonstrated that they're using that money for anything other than other than spending. Um, and again, that, that, that weakens the financial position for the clients. Um, other than that, I think, in all honesty, if if somebody's got 
a level of deposit or equity in a, in a, in a property. There's no real need to, to, to get too ready. You don't need to have a solicitor ready because that takes a couple of days to, to instruct. Um, having a good accountant on board is generally good. But again, that's generally, we tend to find the majority that we take on either are our associates or, or, or from an accountancy point of view are where the associate has decided to buy and then thinks, now I need to get a, a good accountant who knows what they're doing. So I think everything can be done pretty much as and when they find a practice. Yeah. Um, so it's more about finding the right practice. I think so. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, that's what I think we were having a, a chat about before. And um, I, I think people need to understand that there's two very different um, practice types. That, that there's a, uh, we're not talking NHS and private, we're talking principal led property principal-led practices and associate-led practices. Um, and, and to sort of give an, a, an understanding of that, a principal-led, um, we're assuming the principal's working in the practice. So if it's, I don't know, let's say £400,000 turnover practice, two dentists, uh, we've got a principal doing £200,000 gross and, and the associate doing the other 200000 If we were to turn that on its head and, and make that an associate-led, there's two associates working there rather than the one on, one on principal, but we're incurring an extra £90,000 of associate fees for generating the £200,000 gross. Yeah. So when we, when we value a practice, and, and this is really important for buyers, that you, you, they need to understand, am I looking at an associate-led practice or am I looking at a principal-led? Both are, are, are very fine in, in, in what, what they are. Um, but it's important for an associate who doesn't own a practice, not so, well, not so much, but they, if they're buying a principal-led, that's fine because that, that's, what, that's probably what they want to buy. Um, the, the issue being that anybody with one practice or a second practice, if they're not looking at what type of practice they're looking to buy and, and they see a... I found a, a, this great practice. It's a principal-led. It's going to give me another £120,000 profit. But £120,000 profits from the fact that the principal's doing £250,000 in gross fees. Then what are they buying? Well, they're buying a practice that actually they can't work in because they, they already work in the current practice. Um, and they're, they're now employing an associate to do £120,000 gross fees and, and it's making no money. And there's do, finance costs. Do you find that um, are associate-led practice, uh, practices more expensive, or they, they invariably will be? Yes. Um, so I mean, when when we value, um, for example, value for sale, we will actually calculate the values both on a principal-led and an associate-led. So we will do both calculations. Um, we will always choose to, to market for the, whichever gives us the highest value. Um, because it's a bit like uh, I've had many discussions with buyers about this and, and they say, well, how can you do that? And I suppose it's, it's like valuing a house and it, there might be a buy-to-let investor and, and somebody wanting to live there. If the buy-to-let investor says, I want a, a 5% yield and the, and the property um, is going to give me £10,000 rent so I can pay £200,000 for it. If the market says it's worth 300000 because somebody will go and live there, 
somebody will pay 300,000. Yeah. So to some degree, the, the buy-to-let investor is, is the associate led, um, either corporate, and the, the house owner is the, is the principal led. So mm-hmm. somebody working in there will, will potentially generate more profit. Because we use different multiples based on each of the profits, uh, the associate led or the principal led, um, it can be that the associate led um, gives us a higher value. Where that's the case, we know that the um, the associate led type of buyer, i.e., corporates, people buying second practices, third practices, they're likely to to want the practice um, as much as a principal um, or a, somebody wanting to go and work there. Um, where it's the other way around, so a principal led gives a higher value. What we're really saying is to achieve this higher value. We're not going to get the money from a corporate, so we're actually going to get it from somebody wanting to come and work in it. Yeah, and it, it's that that somebody needs to understand because I can sell a practice for a million pound or six hundred thousand pound, or that the, the value is irrelevant. But is it is it the right type of model for the buyer? Um, if if it if it's associate led profit, it doesn't matter. Anybody can buy it because if you're going to work in there as a principal. The associate-led profit is just going to increase by the fact you're working in it. Um, the principal-led models are the ones that need to be people need to be careful of. If it's a, a principal-led model, that means you're working in the practice. Um, so, um, if something's associate-led, I mean, logic sort of suggests that as the lender, they'd look at that, and with everything else being equal and there being no changes, and it all works out on paper. Mm-hmm. Is the person buying it less important? Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's it's less conditional upon them. So if we consider a principal, the IE principal led, um, again you're saying, well, okay, the existing principal is doing three hundred thousand pound of gross fees. Can the current can the guy buying do three hundred thousand, or are they going to do two hundred incur extra fees, which reduces the profit? Are they going to actually increase the fees? Where associate led is all incomes met by associates, regardless. So, to some degree, as long as they manage the business well, it, I could buy as a non dentist. You could buy, and, and in theory, um, with good management, the, the profitability should be the same. And this is this is the interesting thing because if you own your own practice um, and you are generating sufficient income out of that practice to sustain your lifestyle and and everything, then buying a second practice doesn't actually need to generate you the same level of profitability because you've already met all of your rovats. Um, so subject to actually managing to to pay the debt i.e. the finance costs for purchasing that practice you, you'll probably find um that that people are less worried about the, the level of profitability mm-hmm. i have one client who who actually doesn't really care whether the practice makes him any money or not because he from his first and second practice he has sufficient earnings so he's literally buying the a, a third fourth fifth practice so, and as long as it covers costs, covers loan repayments after 15 years, he knows it's going to be repaid um, and he'll have six, seven, eight practices to sell. Now, I don't think that's probably the right model for people to, to look at. 
Um, but it's an interesting concept because uh, he's viewing it as in me owning this practice isn't generating me anything. It's not adding to my life um, from a profitability point of view. But at the end of 15 years, there's a £300,000 value. Yeah, and I think as well, when you've got multiple sites, you, you, the, the value of the whole group is more than each individual, isn't it? So one practice might be, uh, I don't know what, what it is now, six times EBITDA, but then if you have five, it might be eight or nine. Yeah, potentially. Right? Um, it's, it's an interesting one because it's, so we're then coming on to corporates and uh, as I said, part of that, that conversation on corporates, um, corporates are rife at the moment. There's no doubt about it. They, the new corporates coming in, um, you're not just talking about your household names anymore. You're talking uh, your mini corporates, the dentists who own 5, 10, 15, 20 practices. Um, now, you're right if you're, you're probably talking up to seven and a half times on, a, on associate led now. Um, but when you're talking groups, you can be maybe talking sort of a 10 multiple if you're on 10, 15 practices. So what we're seeing a lot of at the moment is is people setting up um, these mini corporates. And, and the, the goal is to get to 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 practices and to sell out. There's no interest in, in them being in it for the long game um, for, for doing the dentistry. It's purely a... Um, buy buy cheaper than I'm going to sell out at. Yeah, it's like a numbers game, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. It, it, it's a bit sad to be honest. It's uh, it's just one of them things. But I think it's the way of the way of the world. It's yeah. corporate corporate dentistry is absolutely rife at the moment. And, and do you think looking at the market, actually the the independent buyer is becoming a little bit squeezed out? Did you see um, that? Or? It, yeah, it's it's a difficult one because the, there's no. To some degree, there's no reason why um, why they are less in a position to to purchase a practice than somebody else. Um, but I sort of come on to, to what you asked originally, which was about what we market um, and, and the reason why we would go and not market half of our practices is because we've got, uh, we have about four and a half thousand people registered with us um, looking for practices, but we've got then the, the people that will buy multiple practices. So we're not talking the corporates. We're not even talking the mini corporates. We're talking about dentists who buy five, 10, 15, 20, 40 practices that um, are in competition with the mini corporates and, and the true corporates. The beauty with them is that they, they'll often, um, though there won't be any retentions, tie-ins that the, the, the big corporates, corporates give. And, and because of the way of the setup, um, because of what I explained about, they've got sufficient earnings to from the first practice. What happens is, especially with, where they've got limited company setups, they have two to 10 practices. They're all feeding profit that they don't need. So what does that do? Well, it just funds the 11th and the 12th yeah. and the 13th practice. Um, so they're, they're in a position where they can, they can borrow, um, they, they might put a million down on a two million pound practice um, and, and, perch, and, and borrow the extra million. But um, going back to our individual squeezed out, I mean, we're doing a couple of deals at the moment where we're um, financing a two 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 and a half million pound sales um, for for individual dentists, right, yeah. um, so that they are they are actually being able to to purchase 
Um, don't get me wrong, the financials have to be absolutely spot on to, to borrow that, that level of money. But these are both associate-led practices where the, the profits are sufficient to, to, to cover their, their lifestyle, the tax, the loan repayment, and, and still have a surplus. So does it need to be in a corporate's hands now? Um, that the, the bank are comfortable that um, it's it's a valid purchase for them. And in terms of the banks and the lenders, do you see from your side any? And I'm, I'm mindful of of what you're from a professional point of view going to be wanting to say. But are there any lenders who you think are better than others, or any that? Oh, aren't in the game at the moment. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, it, I mean, to, to give an example, we when we um, put a finance um, package together, um, we, we write a proposal, and we fire that across to generally about eight banks. Um, to be fair, the, there's banks that I send that to, um, which I I'm not really waiting for their response. Um, the reason we do it is because... <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason we do it, and, and, and this is a real example from two weeks ago, um, I, uh, the, the rates are not great. Um, they're, not really, they're not really hunting for, for um, new business to, too much. Um, they... Um, but they're, they're, they're a fairly house, big household name. And, and a client a couple of weeks ago, um, we'd got all the rates from, from everybody else. And I said, look, the rates are not good. Um, I wouldn't worry about waiting, but he, he wanted to because he, he banked with this bank. Mm. Um, and, and so we, we chased the bank for another week. We've got this terrible rate. And then, then he decided not to use them. So, yeah. so to some degree, yes, there are. Um, I mean, there's the, I think... Um, we, we've certainly gone through the, the banking crisis of 2008 and uh, we're in a, a very comfortable position that the banks are lending and, and some nice nice rates. Um, we've got quite a few rates starting with twos, right. um, two plus base. And the, what you, I think what you've got to be comf- comfortable with though is, is, is just not, not just about the rate, but actually the, 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 the experience of the bank. Yeah. Um, and what we're tending to find is that there are some banks that keep coming in the market and keep leaving the market because they think, oh, healthcare, that sounds great. Um, and then they get in the market and and they just don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and they, to some degree, they're also scared because they don't understand the UDA. Um, they don't understand an NHS contract. They they don't understand um, private plans and and. and and it, it's so risky for them where, where they like the household names of sort of uh, Lloyd's, for example, they, they, it's their bread and butter. They, yeah. they, they know it, they, they're comfortable with it. So, so what does that do? It allows them to offer ridiculously low interest rates. Yeah. I, I, I moved to Lloyd's um, when, one, two years ago, something like that. And I do find them a lot easier. Yeah. I don't know. It just it just feel more comfortable. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, with Lloyd's, so yeah, I, I was kind of thinking because I remember um, speaking to Alan Sugar. He was saying that you know you got got Lloyd's, um, Wesleyan as well. Yeah, Lloyd's, Lloyd's Wesleyan, Santander, <clears throat> uh, Barclays, um, uh, TSB, um, NatWest. I mean the. The, the, the choices are endless, to be yeah. fair. And, and then you've got some um, smaller banks coming in um, that are, are willing to do some lending that maybe 
maybe the household names wouldn't quite do. Um, I know Metro interest. Bank came in, didn't they? Did Metro Bank? Yeah, Me- Metro Bank, uh, um, they're, they're very much Southern-based, um, yeah. from my understanding. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're in there um, lending to, to healthcare as well. So it, it's healthcare's, again, going back to 2008, uh, Lending pretty much from from what I saw stopped um, for anything other than healthcare. Um, or you had to have pretty much a hundred percent security to go alongside your loan. Um, where healthcare was always deemed as the pretty much the safest sector to lend. So a lot of people coming in, but they, in all honesty, the rates are so low that that purchasers can achieve. I'm not. I don't really see how the banks are making much money out of it. And and that's probably why they come in and leave because the 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 margins are not great and to set whole teams up and, and if you're not done all you're doing is probably very limited. I suppose I mean I, I will ask this question, but I kind of feel like you might have answered it really. Um I know when I got the um my I got it under the, the Enterprise Funding Grant, which was the government yes. scheme at the time off the back of the recession. Um just a way for the banks to get that additional security from the government. Yeah. Now, does, does anything like that? Do you, do you, is there any other schemes out there? Is there any other? But then uh, the enterprise finance guarantee is still still around. Is it? Um, so it, it, so this is a um, a scheme that was set up by the government. Um, so where there's a lack of security offered by the purchaser, so the purchaser has to be able to offer what they can. Um, so that you can't say, well, I'll go, I'll go down the EFG route and, and not put my house down as security. So you have to offer everything. Um, and as long as, uh, if the banks feel that the, the practice is financially viable, um, but you, but actually just lack a little bit of, um, deposit or, or, or equity, then, then it is something that they can, they can offer. Um, the, the, the issue being, and you'll have found the same that, um, it's great to to be able to get the loan, and and if you're struggling to get the loan, actually, it's it's a good way to to do it. Um, but it comes with a two percent premium, so you yeah. you're paying an additional two yeah. percent. I always found that that that's one of the things that um, at the time. Well, once I started to realise, because I don't think actually when I spoke to the bank and you know signed everything, I fully understood because I was so mm. focused on getting it. Mm. Um, but that's the one thing that. That if anyone came to me and talked about the EFG, I'd say just keep your eye on that because yeah, I was like they've provided a guarantee to make it me able to buy this. Yeah, you know that's fine, but also it's more expensive. It is it's counterintuitive to me. Yeah, it feels like. But as I say, the issue isn't with financial viability. So if the practice isn't financially viable, the bank wouldn't lend at all. Um, it's so that the practice has to be financially viable regardless of whether the 2% is there or not. So they've got to consider that 2% cost. Um, but it's just where the bank see it as a bigger risk to them. So to some degree, the 2% is the, the government providing them, the bank with security. If you were to default, if, you, if, if something were to happen, that the bank can get something back. Um, what I would say is if anybody does go down the EFG route, um, as I say, it sometimes is the only way in which you can purchase, and yeah. and and you, you are the same, and and it, it it just gives you that position where um, you can actually get through that first hurdle of of actually purchasing. Three years, four years down the line, um, the, the, the 
a, there's a large amount of clients that we arranged loans with the FGs on that we then um, either go back to the existing bank and say, okay, we want this removed um, because now there's £100,000 equity in the practice or, or actually you've got more experience because you're a practice owner, you've got three years, four years worth of accounts to demonstrate it. Um, and if not, then we will rebroke and, and go to go to a different uh, bank yeah. um, that will lend without the EFG. So yeah. I view EFG as a, as a short-term measure. Um, I, I'm, I, I'd rather not lend on it. And to be fair, I'm trying to think in the last two, three years, I don't even think we, we've done an EFG um, yeah. finance deal, but I, I don't I don't believe it's a bad thing if if it's required. I think that was actually, that's quite good what you've said there, that you see it as a short term. It's almost like it's the thing that gets you across the line that yeah. you, you have a strategy in place where you try and come off it after a few years. I think that's quite a good, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, I mean, the, the one one thing that's, uh, I mean, this is the big thing with, with buyers and and. When we we approach banks, that what they what they often don't realise is it's not like raising a residential mortgage where if I can buy a, a practice on a multiple of four times my income or five times my income, it, it's on the financial viability of that practice, and and the financial viability is determined by the level of profit less the drawing requirement, and and so coming back to your previous point about. Uh, preparing yourself for, for practice and purchasing a practice. If your requirement's £3,000 a month opposed to £5,000 a month, that's going to make a significant difference um, to how the bank view the, the, the finance proposal. So what they look at is the, the profit of the practice less the uh, drawing requirement that you need, less the finance cost and less the tax, not quite in that order. Um, and there has to be a surplus. So the drawing requirement is quite significant, but also what people forget about is that what the principal's profit is isn't necessarily what your profit's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you need to, if, if they're gen- generating £120,000 profit, are they working three days a week and you're going to work in their five? Are they actually generating more income than you can generate? And, and that, that could be a plus or minus figure. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this a bit um, a while ago, um, uh, earlier and you said that when it's a private purchase and you've got an individual you tend not to have the sort of the, the tie-in and the sort of these sort of retention clauses yeah. within them um, is, is that pretty much exactly how it is so yeah it's you know, a, a corporate what we tend to find is corporates um, because they're, they're, they're driven by the fact that they need an associate at the practice will will often have a tie-in depends whether it be NHS or private uh, NHS to be fair uh, retentions are pretty much have gone nowadays. Um, with a private practice, you can be talking 20, 25% of, of the value. So if we're, if we're saying a, a million pound um, sale price, then then 75%, let's say, would be paid up front. So 750,000 um, with the further 250,000 or 25% paid over maybe three or five years, depending on that principal saying of the practice and depending on which corporate it is maintaining the the, the level of gross fees um, which now is more towards the total practice turnover to, um, than it used to be 10 years ago which was the, the principal had to maintain their, their own um, personal gross fees yeah. so um, the, the beauty with private individuals and I, I, I mean 
the mini corporates as well as individuals is that they generally don't require retentions. Um, it's not something that's needed um, or, or generally done um, because dentists tend to be able to recruit easier um, than, than the corporates and, and probably feel more comfortable that if somebody was to drop a day, um, then they could probably pick up a day or, or pick up half a day and, and, and spread it around the practice a little bit better. Um, one of the, like I think I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of what, um, when I asked on the, the dental forums and, and asked the dentists around me and through my network, um, a lot of the questions were post-sale. Yeah. And, and, and uh, to do with, you know, if you've had uh, not a very well-maintained list or if you've got lots of crap that you need to fix, I suppose there's a there's a small retainer that's kept for that, or is there not even that anymore? Um, yeah, I, I think it's practice dependent. In, in fairness, um, we're probably getting onto my, my uh, legal colleagues' um, area, but um, if the, if the buyer believes that, um, that there's some type of potential neglect, or, or whether um, there's just a um, a requirement to to keep money back for for whatever reason it doesn't have to be clinical in fairness um that there, there might be a level of retention but we're talking um a calculated level um and to give you an example um if there is a staff dispute um they, they might calculate the level of um, cost in resolving that um, especially if it's a limited company because uh, a shareholder, a buyer buying a limited company is taking over the limited company and therefore will take over the liability of that. So if they have calculated the potential resolution costs of £10,000, they might return £10,000 or, or slightly more um, on the basis that once it's sorted, I'll pay that back to the principal, but I'm not being left to to, to cover cover somebody else's costs. And um, on the subject of limited companies versus sort of sole traded are people um, tending to be more limited or is it just a um, completely mixed bag? I, I think it is mixed. And, and I think um, in reality, the majority of NHS tend to tend to be sole traders, although there are NHS limited companies. From, from my experience, it, it often depends on, on how the practice setup is at the moment. Um, NHS is, is a bit harder um, that if it's a sole trader, um, the way in which we transfer an NHS contract is via a partnership route. So if I was selling to you um, and I had the NHS contract in my name, I would bring you on as a partner um, and then I would leave as a, uh, leave the partnership. And, and that's allowed under the GDS regulations. It, it's how we transfer an NHS contract. Um, because of that, a sole trader um can sell to, or you can sell by the partnership, but you, you can't have a limited company join a partnership. Right. Um, and the the NHS contracts held by an individual, so it has to be an individual buy. Um, we often have cases where um, somebody will say, oh, I've spoken to my accountant, I want to set up a limited company and buy the practice, and we have to say you can't do it because the only way which we can transfer the NHS contract is by the, the um, partnership route. Yeah. So to some degree, the NHS, the, the way in which the, the contract's held will, will stipulate how we transfer it. Um, on the opposing side, if an NHS contract's in a limited company, um, the, the purchasers are pretty much forced to buy the shares because, again, it's the only way in which we can transfer the NHS contract 
um, safely um, for, for, the, for the vendor. With a private practice, you, you've got a lot more choice because what there's no rules around the NHS contracts. And, and, and so what we're tending to find in all honesty is um, private um, people buying private practices will incorporate before they buy. Um, main reason being because they can fund, uh, they can finance through the limited company. So if you finance through the limited company, um, you're benefiting from the fact that you're not having to draw the money out personally to then repay the, the bank. So it's significant tax savings. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a question that cropped up quite a lot, and I suppose with yeah with the NHS and and actually from. From your experience, what is the is can you do you know off the top here what the ratio is? I mean, how many NHS practices are being sold now compared to private? Um, we, funnily enough, we did an analysis um, of our sales in two thousand and nineteen. Um, I trying to think. I think we were about something like about twenty percent mixed. 20% private and about 60% NHS from, right. from memory. So, And what are the, what, I mean, not yours necessarily personally, but how many practices do you get bought and sold a year in uh, the UK? Because uh, well, yeah, you, you, you're UK-wide, aren't you? Or is it mainly England? Yeah, no, UK, well, we cover England, Scotland, Wales. Um, the, I, I don't honestly know. Um, somebody had suggested to me it's sort of between three, three to 500 a year, which to me seems quite high um i think the there's about from my understanding eight to ten thousand practices in the uk um so uh, i that's suppose quite a churn, that isn't it yeah like, you know i mean i suppose if it's 500 that's what one, one in 20 um if that's if my maths is right so i suppose maybe that is about right um so i think the the issue with with the markets is still that there's more buyers than there are sellers, um, especially with the corporates, because the the corporates will happily buy 20, 30 practices in a year. Yeah. And suddenly, if you've got five corporates doing that, they're, they're taking a big chunk of um, of the sales. In fact, one of the other statistics we did, um, I wish I had it in front of me, um, was the... Um, who bought practices, um, whether they were... and. Again, the statistics were something like 46 were unoccupiers. I remember that figure. Um, and the rest, the other 54% were split between corporates and mini corporates. And actually, I think the mini corporates bought more of that 50 uh, odd percent than the, the, the true corporates. So it, it shows roughly a quarter by true corporates, a quarter by mini corporates, i.e. dentists that own multiple practices, and 50% still is owner-occupiers. So right. it, it shows that owner-occupiers is still, is still right, a very positive. And do, do you see that the, the corporate influence with regards to valuations, do you, do you think that's because my friend uh, uh, Giles, who had practice in uh, Huddersfield and Halifax, two practices, eight surgeries between them, Booper bought that for 7.75 million quid. Yeah. Uh, over three hundred percent of the turnover of the of the two practices. That's 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 ridiculous, isn't it? It's incredible. It's yeah, they want that good a principle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it comes again. It comes down to to what we class as EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. The beauty is, it will have been an associate led um, or worked very well on an associate led. And once you then start applying a high income multiple to that. 
um, the, the values just escalate. Yeah. Um, if you've got a very high UDA value and, and, and uh, let's say 30, 35 pound and paying 11, 11 or 12, you, you're not paying 50% cost. So suddenly you're reaping quite an, ex, a, a, an extra amount of profitability. If you imagine um, benefiting from an extra five pound a UDA and you've got 20,000 UDAs, that's an extra 100,000 pound that sits on your bottom line. We then apply a seven and a half times multiple to that. That's an extra three quarters of a million pound added onto a value just because of the UDA value. Jesus. Um, and, and so you can, the, the disparities between values can, can be quite considerable. And, and this is, this is the, uh, the little pet here to have, which is people relating it back to turnover. Um, yeah. Because the, the turnover is absolutely irrelevant. Um, we've got practices you gave the example of sort of three hundred percent of turnover. We, we've got practices that have sold for three hundred ish percent of turnover. Um, we've got some that have sold for one hundred twenty, one hundred fifty percent, and and it, it has no meaning because it, it, it's it's like saying um, a four bed house sells for X value um, across the UK, and 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 obviously they, they they have different values, and it is purely down to the level of profit. Now. Corporates are keeping the market propped up. There's no doubt about it because you're going to go with the highest sale price generally. Um, don't get me wrong, it's an interesting one because actually a lot of our clients won't go with this high sale price. They'll go with the person they, they like the most. Um, but if there's a difference of 500,000, a million pound from values, then, then chances are you, you, the, the money talks. Yeah. And, and what, what we do as agents um, is determine what will you get for that practice, not what, not what can uh, the Mr. Dentist down the road uh, buy your practice for who's an associate, who's 28 and, and, and um, has 50,000 pounds as a deposit, but what can we achieve as a whole um, for, for the practice? What, what's the best price we can achieve? And, and the corporates are in a position where financially they can they can purchase a practice of seven million, um, not worry about it, and purchase another one for five million the, the next day, um, mm. where an individual can't do that. Because back when I was when I was looking, I know that because um, I viewed a few and some of the conversations that I had with some of the principals at the time, and I know from conversations sort of around 2010, 11, it was all about don't want to sell to a corporate. I'll sell to anyone, but I mean, has, has that tide changed? Has it become a little bit more accepting? Um, I, I think I think that probably the, there's a bit of truth in that. Uh, I think also that there's new corporates entering the market um, that probably have a a bit more um, of a softer approach um, that that are trying to establish an ethos of. We look after the dentist. We look after the practice. We are different. Um, I think. I think that's all well and good. But I think once you get to a certain size, it, it then becomes very difficult to, to manage that. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's no doubt about it. They that they there are a lot more people that are more comfortable selling to a corporate. So we we used to have the position sort of five years ago um, or more where people said, "I don't want to sell to a corporate," and and I'd say less so now. I still have it, um, and and again, 
when we look at the amount of practices sold to a non-corporate, if I if I exclude the mini corporates out of it, it's 75% of our market. So um, people, the majority of people are still selling to the non, what I class as true, true corporates, the non-true corporates. Um, but people are selling to them and, and again, money talks. And, and if, if the values that somebody can pay are, seven times on on a million pound for example um ebitda then then to to some degree you you you're limiting the market to actually you can only sell to a corporate because they're the only people that can can fund your your practice yeah i mean giles is a 36 year old retired dentist with a house in california fantastic yeah good man well done yeah what what honestly um I don't know whether these are questions really. I mean, some, some of these kind of have cropped up in conversations that we've had. Um, so with regards to you, so you've bought the right practice. Are you found the right practice that you think you have? Yeah. And then you've gone through the stages. So it's, I think it's quite interesting that you've said how if you're a potential purchaser, you actually, apart from maybe looking at yourself from a financial point of view regarding maybe expenditure and this and yeah. just neatening things up, you don't actually have to have a huge amount prepped. Really, if you start to become interested in buying a practice, you mainly want to be making sure that, you know, you're, you're looking at the right kind of practice. And once you've found it, the ball starts then, the, you know, the, the ball starts yeah. rolling. And I, I think you've got to take advice. Um, I, I was with a client a couple of days ago and they, they had uh, £150,000 that they were looking to put in as a, a cash deposit. Um, however, the, the the clients had sufficient equity. I think there was three four hundred thousand pound equity in the house. Now, in in my view, I, I was trying. I had a conversation with them saying, "Look," and and they they got this money set ready to to put down as the deposit. And and when we had the conversation, um, they then realised that actually we can use the equity in somebody's house, allow the bank to have a second charge. Um, on the on the equity to some degree, and it meant that they could retain the cash. Now, interestingly, then the, the conversation developed into it was a private practice purchase, so we can set up a limited company. Um, so I I was focusing the the cash um, deposits and, and actually saying, well, why don't you pay the residential mortgage off? Because actually, if you pay the residential mortgage off. You're in a position where you, yes, you're going to finance more for the practice, but you're now going to set it up as a limited company. Um, the limited company is going to borrow the money, so it's a more tax efficient way. Um, you're getting um, tax relief off the the amount that you, you're actually borrowing as well against having to draw the money out to pay your residential mortgage off. So it's interesting that I I don't think any any buyer should go in with a preconceived idea as to I'm going to do this, but actually look at let's let's sort of put all the information on the table and and then pick and choose to to determine what's actually suitable for that client, um, and it may well be very different to to how they imagined it. Yeah, um, and just so that we can work, just just so we touch on a few things, so we've got what we feel is the right practice. We you know we've viewed it, we've come to an agreement with the person selling it, the vendor. Yeah. You then look in uh, at that stage, instructing the solicitor um, to start doing all of the legal yeah. bits of it. Um, that would include 
NHS contract stuff at that stage if it's NHS or? yeah I mean so the solicitor um, and in fairness I, I probably until we we had our legal firm didn't quite realise the extent of what they did and, and probably appreciate a solicitor a little bit more than I used to um, but they, they will do the due diligence so they will have a a set questionnaire of what they want from the principal which which is to protect you it's, it's information that they understand that um, from dealing with hundreds of dental practice purchases and sales that is vital information uh, regardless whether you believed it, it would be important or not um, once they've got that um, further queries may come from it um, they will write a sale purchase agreement they will put the the protections in place for what you were discussing before which is a potential i'm concerned about the practice because of 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 xyz um and and maybe put a level of retentions in um they have what they call warranties which is um the, the vendor warranting that something's correct um so whatever's in the sale purchase agreement they're, they're signing to say this is correct and and that form that's formed from the due diligence um but the, the solicitors will also deal with the, the cqc element um so obviously you will need a cqc application or registration um from from the start date of, of purchasing or owning um, and there'll be an NHS contract transfer. The CQC can become quite complicated with an NHS practice because we need to, if the owner has an NHS um, contract, they, they will have their own CQC registration. Uh, what happens when you form a partnership on an NHS contract is that the buyer and the seller go together on, on, on a, under a partnership and then we remove the vendor. So if you think about it, it goes the NHS contract goes vendor, vendor purchaser, and then just purchaser. The CQC has to mirror that. So we have to then do a joint CQC application. And then once the once that's gone through, when we before we can remove the vendor, we have to do a new CQC registration for the buyer. So there's there's actually three. There's the vendor having theirs, which which is already there, the vendor and the purchasers. And then the purchasers. So it's it's important, and I suppose this is where the the specialism has to come in as well. Um, that somebody who knows what they're doing, um, not only just to get through the registrations and the applications, but to protect the purchaser. Um, and I think that that's that's probably one of the vital things. But I think for anybody listening who's potentially looking at buying. Um, there's a, probably a few things. Make sure they can do CQC um, first of all, because the, the solicitors that will will stay away from it. Um, and the big thing um, that we see is make sure you get a fixed fee. Um, right. So some solicitors, uh, like ourselves, we will just charge a fixed fee. We we will calculate the level of work we believe it will be. If it goes beyond that, then that the, that that's on us, not the purchaser. I think it's it's a more commercial view nowadays that. Um, Historically, somebody paying an hourly rate um, would, would not necessarily have to work to, to their full speed. Yeah. And I've heard some horror stories where um, where we've dealt with sales um, prior, prior to our legal service, but where either a vendor or a purchaser had a solicitor that had a quote for something like six or eight thousand pounds and suddenly it became fifteen, sixteen thousand. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem is, especially with a purchaser, is you're pretty much investing all of your money into the purchase, into the, either the deposit, the legal fees, the, the bank fees, the valuations, and, and suddenly you haven't got that extra extra cash. Um, 
on that actually, so you'd you'd would you be simultaneously would you have already gone to the bank to get the finances confirmed? Or do you yeah. yeah. So 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 the process process I what I believe it is is the right process. Um first of all you 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 look at the financial viability of the practice. That that, that that's key. Um I, I tell people I think that's more important than than, than the valuation to, to some degree. Uh, we we look at is the practice viable? Is it generating the level of profit that you need it to generate based on what you want to do with the practice? Um, so again, not what the principal's doing, but um, what you are planning on doing going forward. Now, there's two levels of, of projections there. There's one that we would provide to a bank and then there's one that the client can have. Um, the difference being that if you were to say, um, okay, I'm an implantologist. I'm going to go in and do an extra £200,000 of gross fees. That's great. And, and you can project for that. I, I always suggest you project for what's there. Um, but that's what the bank need. The bank need what, what's there at the moment. So you can't increase the turnover. The turnover is, is has to stay level. Um, but if you if you know you're going in and, and the, the principal's only working three days, but you can work five, then you can reduce the associate costs, which increase the level of profitability. So you can do it that way. Um, but if, once you've looked at the financial viability of the practice, um, then we would look at arranging the finance because to be fair, the bank will want to see those projections. Um, and we do, we're one of um, Lloyd's preferred accountants to, to um, provide projections and they, they, we do significant amounts for them. So it, it's a fairly easy process in fairness, but it, it's, it's vital for, for the buyer to decide this is the right practice. So we would then approach the bank. Um, so that, that's a lending report going. And the lending report it, it is simply a report saying, this is the practice, this is the buyer, and this is how the buyer is going to work in the practice. So, so understanding the, the practice as a whole, whether it be NHS private, the level of profit, the, um, the setup, the location, this is the, the individual um, as they stand, the assets, the liabilities, their incomes, their expenditures, um, the drawing requirements. And then this is, the, this is how the practice will work under them, that they're going to either take over from the principal or they're, they're actually going to work a couple of days here, a couple of days off-site as an associate somewhere else. This is how the, the profit and loss will look under their ownership. I generally would get a client to a stage where we've we've got an agreement in principle from the bank um, before I would instruct a lawyer. Um, just I, I think it just gives that confidence that um, it's not wasted fees. Um, now, to be fair, from the day in which I would um, have a client fill in a fact find to to write the report to get the agreement in principle, we're talking less than a week. Right, okay. um, so so the, the time scales are very very quick. Um, so in fairness, if, if a buyer um, felt that they needed to, he, by the time that they phoned up two, three solicitors, got quotes, um, we, we'd have got the finance confirmation anyway. Right. Um, so yeah, so then the really then, is it just, it's just a waiting game then, isn't it? Because um, yeah. it's just a case of, and how long is the whole process usually? You said nine months. Early. Yeah, so typically we, we say six to nine months uh, as, as a general rule of thumb. Um, and it depends on the, on the practice itself. Um, but the, the, the first step is the due diligence. So it, it's really that the, 
the, for the vendor to to provide you know the, the thick ring binders um two thick ring binders of information which which is generally the the level of due diligence that people will ask for um in all honesty that that tends to take the principal one to two months to get together so at this point you're sat back and thinking well, there's not much going on here um other than sort of going through the further steps with the finance, um, which is then having a credit back decision. So the bank manager comes to meet you, goes through their applications. They have to go through their credit team, make sure that they're happy. Um, and, and then would, would instruct a valuation. So at this point, nothing really, is, too much is happening. Um, we then start the CQC application um, because at the CQC application, it's a three month process. Um, so what we don't want to do is get to the end of legal work and then add another three months on. Yeah. So we would we'd start prepping that um, so that we can issue it um, within a month or two of the agreed sale. So, yeah, typically six, nine months. I mean, if you look at NHS practice, um, then in essence, it takes a month to get your um, DBS check. It has to be a CQC countersigned DBS check. So that's the day in which you request it. It probably takes about a month to get back to us. Um, from that, we then can submit the CQC application with the DBS number um, that's required, which is a three month process, assuming that it's been completed correctly. Um, and then and then after we've got the um, comfort letter back from the CQC, that's when we actually can then serve notice to the LRT. So if it's an NHS practice, um, and that's a 28 day period. So the minimum process time is five months. Um, and that that's if you are doing everything the day in which, which it should be done um, and sort of forgetting all the legal work. Um, what we tend to find happens with the legal work is that the property can cause more issues than the business. And, and it's funny because you as a buyer a focus on the business and the property is just it's just a side thing isn't it? it it's just the thing that comes along with it but actually the the we, we tend to find that so many issues come up with property especially if the leasehold and there's an external landlord that that can drag out because suddenly you're then talking to a, a third solicitor who's the landlord solicitor um and and the, there's no priority for them because they're not involved in the sale yeah. they don't really care um and and they will just get to it when they get to it. Yeah, um, colleague of mine who's currently going through the process of buying one, mm. that's what's holding them up at the moment because the survey was done. It's leasehold purchase and they've got damp and there's like an ex damage to an external wall or something. Right, okay. So it's not enough for there to be a, you know, a proper structural issue that's going to involve, like, yeah. affect the business, but that's just caused this whole sort of, right, well, who's going to deal with that? Is it need... You know, Absolutely, and, and, and this is then the conversation as to, okay, that there's there's an issue in the property. This needs to be put right, and generally, generally, it would be up for the vendor to to put the property right, um, and which delays time because they've then got to get some assessor in. Um, we had somebody who uh, we've just complete a, a couple of weeks ago who had the Japanese knotweed in, in the really property, like and and that was an absolute nightmare. And and there's a um, it was dealt with, but it, it's never dealt with. So there's a, a, a structured process, there's payments, and, and it, that became a very complicated issue. And that, that's just one minor issue that you would never even think of that, yeah. that, that relates to a property which um, took months to resolve. Now, 
don't get me wrong, other things were going on at the same time. Um, but it just shows that a little spanner in the works can can crop up at any time. Yeah. And um, you know what? I'm looking at these and I think I think the thing is, um, I, sort of in, in summary, I suppose, what's good from my perspective, speaking to people who are aspirational younger dentists and things, a lot of questions that people ask, actually, if you find the right practice, there's not really any point in delaying or anything like if, if you feel like the practice ownership's for you and I do think you need to you need to that's a difficult decision to make yeah I think a lot of people assume that practice ownership's their next career step yeah but it isn't as easy as that I think a lot of times but I think if you do find yourself in a position where you're like you know I think I'm going to go for this yep get, get the advice but really there's nothing you, stopping you there's nothing stopping you yeah I think, I, I think you're right, though, that I think you've got to understand as a buyer that you're not just going into, and this is what we talked about earlier, um, that you can't just assume that you're going to go and work in the practice uh, in the surgery five days a week, lock yourself in the in your, in your surgery, and, and everything else will take after, uh, look after itself. Um, yeah, I think there is the... the probably naivety from, from quite a lot of people that there's nothing really to do from a management side. Um, a good PM can be absolutely fantastic and, and uh, could probably make the difference for most people. But I think there's always a, a lack of understanding of quite probably how much the principal does um, yeah. in, in, in admin, in, in running the business and in, in dealing with staff issues. And, and it's probably not for everybody, but I think you're right. I think anybody that's looking at, that finds the right practice that, and financially it, it works for them, that there is nothing stopping them. It's something that you've got to do. And because of the market conditions being so high, um, I think you've got to jump at it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, good. So I think in terms of, you know, you, Martin, PFM Dental, I think if, if someone wants to get in touch with you, yeah, um, what's the what's the best way to do that? Um, best thing is probably to give us a call. Um, I mean, the anybody can email, uh, go on our website, pfmdental.co.uk. Um, but to be fair, I mean, if, if anybody's looking to buy or, or, or needs advice, it, it, it's one of them things you, you need to have a conversation. You, you need to understand what, what, they, what they're wanting from it. It's not just a practice purchase. It's what they are what they're wanting to achieve with what they're buying. So um, in all honesty, it's probably best to, to contact either myself or, or one of my colleagues um, and, and we'll just talk them through the process, talk them through how we can help um, and, and and see see what they've got already in place and, and, and see what Because that can be done before they found a practice. I know I had conversations with you yeah. um, before. I went through John Drysdale. Yes. And I came in so, that yeah. way. Um, so I know that my conversations with you began, I think, before yeah. I found the practice. So I think that's a, I think I, I think sometimes feeling as if you know the people to go to before you 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 need them is often reassuring because you, you can then just contact them and say, okay, I found the practice. Can can we get on with can we get on with things? And and, and also I suppose as well, if if you've had a conversation with somebody and you've got an idea about them as an individual, and something does come across your books that. Um, you mentioned fifty percent are on the website, fifty percent aren't. But yeah. there's something that crops up, and you think, you know, actually, Brad, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, 
this fits his criteria. I'm Absolutely. Thinking, you know, yeah. And, and we've got, um, so I have a couple of colleagues, uh, that, that purely deal with the buyers. Um, so, so they are, um, they're nine to five, five days a week who, who purely deal with buyers, uh, are talking to buyers, finding out what they want. And, and, um, then those practices, as you say, are coming on the market. If the, if the principal, Wants it to be a quiet marketing, um, which which some do, um, then then obviously we, we we can we can contact them. Um, but it's just figuring out what you need. Um, I, I think is probably the best way to put it, and, and determining exactly how how much experience you have, what what you need assistance with, what you don't need assistance with, and and, and then we can tailor everything. And I suppose. That's the beauty of where PFM is at the moment is that, that we've got the valuations and sales department, we've got the financial services department, we've got the legal department, we've got the accountancy. Um, we are, I, I hate the phrase, but we are the one-stop shop. Um, that we are, we, but if you've got your solicitor or you've got your accountants, um, we, can, we can work alongside whoever. So we can drop in whichever service that, that people need to, to sort of manage and, and assist that, that that transaction for them perfect well uh thank you again no good to see you again thank you Great.